The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Today I'm going to be completing a two-part series on the book of Jude. And so if you weren't here last week, we covered the first 23 verses of the only chapter in Jude. And what I want to do today is I want to read through that again and do a short recap because there's so many of you that weren't here for that message, even if, I just, even if you just hear the sermon of Jude, because that's really what it is. Jude is preaching a sermon. He's, he's making a case And so I want you to hear that before we go into our message today, which is the very last two verses, the blessing or the doxology, the benediction, whatever you want to call it. That's what we're going to be covering today. So I'm going to be reading right here out of my NLT. I know that it's probably not the most common translation out there, but I really like the way that Jude is translated in this particular translation. So if you don't have an NLT, just listen along or follow along. If you do, great, read along. But I really want you to focus on this and imagine yourself in a context where you're in a church. Jude, a leader from far, far away that's attached to that church, is sending a message because he's maybe not disappointed, but he's fearful of what might be happening in that church. And Jude actually sends a sermon. That's what this is. It's a sermon. So I want you to hear it today as a sermon as I read it. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I'm writing to all who have been called by God the Father who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but he left the place, but they left the place where they had belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness waiting for the day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual pervasion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael One of the mightiest of the angels did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people scoff at things they don't understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. So they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them 
for they follow in the footsteps of Cain who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you in their fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead. For they bear no fruit, and they have been pulled up by their roots. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars, doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam prophesied about these people, he said, Listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of the ungodly things they have done and for all the insights that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus said. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and wait the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others. But do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away, and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God. Our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our all glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time, and the present and beyond all time. Amen. Jude is writing about some significant issues, some real problems in the church of that day. In his particular context, he was writing about false teachers. But as I read more and more over the previous week, I was convicted more and more how we all have a bit of false teacher in us. How we tell each other lies, how we tell ourselves lies, how we justify methods and doctrine by telling ourselves the lie that those things are what make us as Christians. What makes us as Christians is one gospel that gospel that God loved us so very much, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the only gospel. That is the thing that must define all of us. But we bicker and we squabble and we separate ourselves into these wonderful little clubs that we call denominations. And we decide that methodologies 
are of more value than glorifying God by our actions. I was greatly convicted as I studied the first chunk of Jude that I myself must guard against becoming a false teacher. That I must seek out the things in my life that already exist that might be lies to you. So I do apologize ahead of time if I in any way misrepresent this scripture so that I do not become the very subject of my sermon. I pray that God will have peace and mercy on me as I deliver this. That I will have been convicted by it. So as we read through Jude, Jude made it very, very clear that these false teachers are here. They're among you. They're hidden. They're like a a tree in autumn, twice dead, bearing no fruit and pulled up by the roots. They're like a reef ready to tear the bottom out of your boat unknowingly. They are hidden. They are among you. Jude also makes it very, very clear that it has been foretold what will happen to these people. That they will absolutely be judged because we worship a God of justice as much as we worship a God of grace. Jude makes several parallels with other stories in Scripture about what happens in the end with these lies. Now we could take these false teachers and we could put them in the context of just a pastor standing before you giving these false things. But the examples that he uses are Sodom and Gomorrah. Moral failure. Physical death. The angels fallen. Darkness for eternity. He uses examples of things that come from our very own lives. That they are grumblers and complainers. I cannot take myself and move myself out of that category. I am a grumbler and a complainer. So by Jude's definition... There is part within me that is a false teacher because I am living a lie that that grumbling or that complaining would make me feel any better, that it would make you feel any better, that it would edify the body in any way, shape, or form that is a lie that I live and I know I must believe it because I do it. And so I would ask you today to look into your lives and see what lies you tell yourself, what lies drive your actions. How do you justify who you are? How do you justify your relationship with your spouse, with a friend, with a sibling, with a lost family member? How do you justify your relationship? Is there a justification for that sin? If you have convinced yourself that there is justification for anger that is not being dealt with, if you have convinced yourself that there is justification for grumbling or complaining, then you are living a lie just as I live a lie. Justification for these things is not found in Scripture. So today as we get to the end of Jude, he says, please reach out and rescue those that are falling. Do not just let them fall by the wayside. Rescue those that are just maybe experiencing a little bit of of questioning. Rescue them by putting solid faith in them, by allowing the Holy Spirit to work through them. He says even Michael didn't condemn evil, 
But he said, the Lord rebuke you. I pray that we would be a congregation that does not rebuke each other, but allows the Holy Spirit to work through us, to change, to edify, to grow, to mature those around us. He says, go out and rescue those that are teetering on the edge, that are falling, that have already begun to believe the lies of the false teachers. Rescue them, reach out, grab them. Bring them back into the fold. And then he says there's a third category. Those who have already believed the lies of the false teachers. Those that are already down the path, that are committed to the lies of the false teachers. He says, have mercy on them. Have mercy. He doesn't say condemn them and send them away. He says, have mercy with caution. Do not follow them, but have mercy. Do not justify their actions, but have mercy. Preach the gospel, the good news into their lives in mercy, but do not justify the choices that they've made. Love them as God has created them, not as they have fallen by man. It's a strong sermon. It's a strong passage. And I think it applies to everybody sitting in this room that would say that I follow Jesus Christ. Then we get to the very, very end. All glory to God, who is able who is able. That's the key word, right? He is able. We get to the end of Jude and we look at the passage and we think, how is it even possible? How is it possible? How do I find the lies? How do I search them out? How do I seek those things that have gone terribly wrong in my life? If I knew them, then I could act. But he says, he is able. All glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away. Jude is giving you the answer to the question that you ask. How do you save those that have fallen? How do you maintain your relationship with Christ yourself? You give God glory because he is able to keep you. At the beginning of Jude, he says to those that keep themselves that we must also keep ourselves, but that is in a response to what God has already done for us. If we begin the process of keeping ourselves without first understanding how God keeps us, we will fail. All glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away. Where's away? Away is into the lies. It's into the sin. It's into Satan's domain where he wants you. That's where away is. Away is this language that here is God and away is from him. It's not morality. It's away. Because the problem is not morality. The problem is distance. The problem is how close we are to God how closely we follow him, how closely we pursue him. And morality, once again, is a symptom of a heart changed. It is not the cause. Distance 
and will bring you with great joy, with great joy into the glorious presence of God. Here's the end result. When it's all said and done and you've made that decision and you've decided to glorify God with your life, when you've given him his due, then he brings you into his presence. It does not say, now come into my presence. It says, I will bring you. He will bring you into his presence. Because once again, we are not capable. We do not know the way. We are not able But God is able to keep us and he will bring us into his glorious presence. With sadness and moaning and mourning? No, with great joy. Not with happiness, with joy. Not only your joy, but God's joy. That he will be joyful and bringing you into his presence. Now, I know right now I'm literally preaching to the proverbial choir. But this is not something that I yet have made in my life because I I don't do it. And so I have to assume that there's others out there that struggle the same way I do. That you don't feel that joy. And if it comes down to God in joy, bringing you into his glorious presence, and you, not, you are not experiencing that joy, there is a problem. There is a disconnect. And you need to seek out what that disconnect is. With great joy. Where is God's presence? Righteousness, holiness, all those things. They are not God. They are characteristics of God. He is bigger than those things. He contains those things. All goodness in the world is contained by God. Not just expressed, not just a character of, but contained within his being and character. Where is God's presence? Within him. That is the only definition that will suffice. Are you experiencing joy? Are you being brought into God's presence? Jude kind of alludes to this idea, and we won't get into the theology of this because it's for a different sermon by somebody more qualified than I to preach. But Jude alludes to this idea that those that are faithful can fall. And I don't want to get into eternal salvation and what that looks like. But Jude is certainly making a point here that there are those within the body that would call themselves faithful that have fallen. I don't know what that looks like, except for how it looks in my own life, that I have fallen. I want to be in God's presence, and I know that there are a lot of days where I don't feel as though I am in God's presence. This last week as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I set myself to doing this sermon on blessings and doxologies. And I was going to do this great study through, very topical. And I started to study this particular passage. And I decided over time that maybe my scope was a little bit too big. That maybe in order to understand what a blessing, a doxology 
is that I should really just study one. And so I committed this one to memory and I repeated it over and over and over and over again in my soul for the entire week. Last night we had a little party at our house for the American 4th of July, which we did the 5th of July. But through that whole time I kept feeling my brain go back to this passage and reciting it all. Glory to God. Over and over and over again. And I'll tell you what, I have never cried so many times in one week in my entire life. If you want Scripture to penetrate your soul and to change you, learn it. Recite it. Become it. Because there has been times this week where I did not, I had no idea why I was crying. Simply just all glory to God, who can keep me, who can bring me into his presence without a single fault. How can you know that scripture and it not change you? Why? Because you're sinful like me. But it should change you. All glory. He can keep you from falling away. And He will, He will, with great joy, bring you into His presence without a single fault. So many of us here, I know, because I struggle with this, we're here long enough, we're in this community long enough, we're in kind of our Christian bubble long enough, we're with all of our foreign friends long enough, that we start to forget how Scripture truly applies to life. That this is not something that we have come here to just preach, but it is something we have come here to do. Because it should not look differently here than it does anyplace else. And so for me, I struggle with this because I know over time I've become content and I've forgotten the power of Scripture. And that is one of the key things that I learned this week is how powerful Scripture is, how life-transforming it can be. All glory to Him who is God alone. God alone. The only God. I'll tell you what, I can't raise my hand right now and tell you honestly that I feel like God is the only God in my life. But this makes it very, very clear that all glory to God, who is God alone, to Him who is God alone, He is the only one, there is only one seat and there is only one person that can sit on that seat. And yet in my life, I struggle with the God of ministry. I struggle with the God of family. I struggle with the God of friends, of kids, of fellowship, of being liked, of doing my job well, of being somebody up here that you want to listen to. I struggle with that. I put on this facade. There is only one God. One. And that is it. All glory to Him who is God alone. There's 25 sermons right there. 
And the next word is another ten. Our salvation. Our salvation. Once again, the solution to our problems, we come after we read Jude and we think, how is this possible? I feel horrible. All glory to God, our Savior. Our Savior. How? Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is such an important piece because we have to realize in the sovereignty of God, He Himself as a divine being, as the Father of the triune, cannot participate in life with sinful people. But He knew that. And He made sure that that would not stop Him from ministering in the lives of the people He cares with. He sent us Christ. Christ came. He was born. He lived a blameless life, changing the lives of those around him. But those lives were never changed so significantly as the day he died. How many parables are there in the New Testament of the disciples just simply not getting it? Not getting it. In boats and on land and on mountains, it didn't matter where he was. Jesus was constantly preaching to the disciples saying, you don't get it. When are you going to get it? And then Jesus dies. For our sins, he dies. That changed those disciples. What happened to their lives after that? They all go off and retire in some nice cabin in like northern Europe or Florida or Canada or Australia or wherever? No, they died for their belief. Jesus' death transformed their life so significantly that they each in their own way died for it. That is life transforming. Jesus Christ is transforming. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what kind of put the final nail in for the disciples. What happened after he died? They just kind of lost it. They had no idea what to do. They still did not get it. But then what happened? Three days later, he rose again and he appeared to them. And that completed it. Their life was not simply changed just by Christ's death, but by his resurrection. Because that is the picture that we are given here. Because we must die to ourselves. And rise again in Christ in order to truly understand this. As a pastor's kid, for pretty much my entire life, I grew up just always being a Christian. Some of you probably had that experience. I remember approximately six years old when I had this conversion experience. And I learned to tell that story because that's what they wanted to hear in Sunday school. Um, And then I got to high school And I realized how very little that conversion actually meant to me. And then I got into college and I realized how even littler that experience meant to me. And I told the worst of lies in college. I lived lies to everybody. Because there was no Christ in my spirit at that point. I don't believe that that six-year-old me was a Christian. 
because it never truly transformed me. Until God grabbed a hold of my life in my senior year of college, tired of me dragging my feet, a God with a big plan for my life, who could not force me because of his nature into what he wanted, but he could sure make it difficult for me to go the other direction. He ripped things out of my life. Relationships, opportunities, possibilities, wealth, stability, dependability. He ripped them from me. And I have never been so thankful. It was painful. But that is what put me on the path to end up in a place where I can now say I do feel like God is transforming, not transformed, transforming my life. I do feel as though now God has had such grace on me that He came through on His promise and He is bringing me into His glorious presence. I listened to a sermon this week from Dallas Willard, which if you've never heard a sermon from Dallas Willard and you really want to cry, that's a good person to listen to. Um, because he has, he was a theologian for a very, very long time, um, and really a, a very keen thinker, and really just got scripture. And I don't think I've ever heard a sermon from him where he just at some point in time isn't weeping in front of everybody because you can see in him that the scripture has so transformed his life he cannot even speak it without being transformed by it. Jesus Christ made a big difference. All glory. All glory. Everything that is good in the world. All glory. All credit. All value in the world is Christ's. All majesty, His glorious place. Isaiah 6 has a wonderful vision of God's glory. His majesty. All majesty. Not just His majesty. All majesty. If you have ever experienced any majesty in your life or in anybody else's life or ever seen it anywhere on this planet, it is God's majesty. All majesty. All glory. All power. Power. Does that word still have any meaning to us? As worrisome, anxious Christians, does the word power really mean anything to us anymore? Because in my life, I just kind of, I kind of glazed over this while I was studying. It's like, okay, all glory, all majesty, all power, authority. Okay, that's good. And I glazed over it, and I ended up coming back to it eventually, and just thinking, power. That this is the God of the universe, and all of His power contained within Him. Everything. Powerful. And yet. This morning, we're trying to work out the sound system, and we have a little sound issue, and I'm worried that we're not going to get it worked. It was a stupid switch back there that took us a while to figure out. At that point in time, I'm in my own humanity worrying 
preparing for the very worship service that I would invite you into this sermon, I am worrying and telling myself a lie that I must fix this problem or worship will not happen. Power. Has it transformed you? Wherever I've seen power in the world, I've seen it affect things. Is there really power in the world that does not have effect on other things? That's what power is. Power is the ability to produce something, to change something, to make something move, to make something adjust, to create something, to destroy something. That is power. If none of those things are part of your life, then you have not experienced God's power. And ultimately, authority. Some translations translate this sovereignty. It's a good word, sovereignty. I think the five-point tulips, the Calvinists have kind of ruined this word a little bit for some people. But ultimately, I believe both sides of the equation are going for the right thing. Sovereignty is God's free will to do whatever, whenever, however he wants, both past, present, and future, period. That is sovereignty. If God wants us to worship today, then he's going to make that happen. If God wants you to raise more money, he's going to make that happen. If God wants lives saved in Thailand, you're not going to make that happen. God's going to make that happen. You simply get to be along for the ride. I know at one point in time, God did me a great service by making me feel as though I was simply just along for the ride. (laughs) My life changed drastically in the course of about 18 months from really no faith, totally self-serving, opportunity of a lifetime to no opportunity, no self to really serve, nobody to really participate in that with, getting on a plane to come to Thailand, where six months later I would be engaged, six months after that I would be married, nine, ten months after that I I would have my first child. During that time frame when God was ripping things out of my life, one of the things he ripped out of my life was another person that I was engaged to, not a Christian, not a believer. In two years, God took me from driving, or at least the perception that I was driving, and he shoved me in the back seat, and he made it very, very clear to me that he was done waiting for me to get there. I have never been so thankful for another two-year period of my life, ever. Because that period of life showed me that I have truly no control That God is truly sovereign. That he will do with me what he wants. I can either choose to participate in that willingly or unwillingly. But God will do as God will do. And one of the things that God desperately wants is for us to participate with him. At the very, very end of this, amen. Right? Amen.
simple. How many times a day do we say that as a Christian community? How many times a day do we say that? As I was reading through this, one of the things that just struck me is how much none of these words have any meaning in my life anymore because I've just forgotten that they mean something. As as I'm going over and over and over and over in my head, I'm realizing that all of that is what I have placed into Scripture, not what Scripture has placed into me. I don't come from a very liturgical or traditional background in churches, but enough so to make me a little bit leery around things like creeds and readings. Anybody else come from that type of a background where maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's not? On both sides of the fence, I think we have pretty much a whole spectrum here. But I was desperately convicted that every baggage that I read into Scripture that reduces its value is my sin. That if I read a scripture, if I read a creed, if I participate in worship and for some reason it is not edifying to me and my spirit, that is not God withholding. That is my sin. If we read scripture up here or back there or amongst yourselves and it means nothing to you, if you find yourself dazing, daydreaming, That is not the scripture becoming less valuable. That is not Christ at work in your life. That is you allowing your past of sinful choices and lies to filter the scripture that God is currently putting in you. And I was so, I was just devastated by this. The Lord's Prayer. How many times have we recited that in our lifetime? Does it still have meaning? If it doesn't, it's not because it has less meaning. It's because you've given it less meaning. All glory to God who is able to keep us from falling away and will bring us with great joy into his glorious presence. All without a fault. Without a fault. Don't forget that part. I like to forget that part. All glory to him who is God alone. Alone. There is not room in your life for more than one. Our Savior, through Christ Jesus our Lord, the fulfiller. All glory, all majesty, all power. And all authority before time began, in the present, and beyond time. Sometimes I think, wow, yeah, okay, I get it now. I get it now. And I forget the whole fact that it's been like this all along. Before time began. Before that happened. Before you lost that supporter. Before a friend or a relative died before a car accident, before a child making a poor decision, before you making a poor decision, before all of those things happened, there was God. And he was all glory, all majesty, all power, and all authority before you were even thought of. And that applies to you now in the present. All glory, all majesty, all power, and all authority Now, in this room, at this time, at this moment, 
and beyond time. Right now, my son is in America. My wife and I took an opportunity. Well, I don't know if it's really an opportunity. Some would say it's an opportunity um, to ship him off with his grandparents for a month to go have um, some American culture and really kind of experience life there with some of his family members. And I can't tell you how many times it's come up. What if something happens to him? You know, God never says that he will keep us alive. That's never a promise in Scripture. What he says is he'll keep us alive in Christ. In an eternal framework, in a different dimension, in another world, in a place where our spirit dwells, that's where we have a guarantee of life. And even though Aiden is with family that I trust and I admire and I respect and I know he's safe and well kept, a month is a long time. And for me to know that no matter what, his soul is kept. Kept. I can have confidence in that. Beyond all time. Hopefully from this you've gotten a bigger picture of God. A bigger picture of what he is capable of. Today, as we worship, we have a chance to do communion. As you participate in that, does it still have meaning? Does it still have value? We're going to be reading scripture. What will you do to keep yourself focused on the glory, the majesty, the power, and the authority of God while that scripture is read? This is the perfect sermon to end with a doxology because we have one. And you're going to hear it again and again because what I've realized is repetition in scripture was very annoying to me and my sin. And yet repetition in Scripture has changed me. This is a great one to sit down and memorize. All glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who is God alone, alone, our Savior in Christ Jesus our Lord. All glory, all majesty, all power, and all authority are his all of it. If you've ever experienced or used any of those things, it's his. Before time, now, and beyond all time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for loving us enough to give us the answers loving us enough to giving us the solution. 
We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you are just so big. That you are just so capable. That you are just so able. And that you desire to bring us into your glorious presence with joy and faultless. Lord, I pray today as we worship that these songs, these words would not fall on deaf ears. Lord, that we would be a body rejuvenated. Lord, that we would wrestle with those issues of liturgy and repetition, that those are things that the church has ruined for us. Lord, I would say that that is our sin. And I pray that you will remove those blockages from us, that we will be able to recite your scripture, to sing your praises, to worship you without hindrance. Because you are the solution. We commit this time to you, Lord, and we know that you are able. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.